Okay, that's fine. That's fine. This is oh, a very fun. complicated interview. That's nice fun. to see Thank you guys. Thank you very much for your now. evenings. Yeah, no, 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 no. Hold on. I have to ask you a deep question. What okay. is a human being and why do you Benjamin like talking always asks me, what does it mean to be a woman? And I'm like, I don't know, Benjamin Boyce. This, we always end up at that question, well, that's which I, ultimate... I'm going to refuse to answer it if you ask I me it today. I still don't know the answer, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. Casey and Sasha, have you guys uh, spoken? We've never before? met. Okay. No, we haven't. Well, Casey, Sasha, Sasha, Casey. <laughs> nice to meet nice, you. I mean, nice to meet you. I, I've watched some of the interviews and like the podcasts that you do not extensively, and obviously you've probably seen some of my uh, pithy takes on Twitter. But otherwise, um, I don't know you all that well, and hopefully, we'll get to know each other a little bit better after this. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that before we recorded because I think you you were in some online drama and I only know the marginal outlines of that story. I didn't really dive into it, but um, I'm aware that you you got like thrust into the public eye in a really major way from just sharing some aspects of your experience. So it's it's weird like to kind of land in that huge public role, I guess. Yeah, well, I've uh, successfully mostly um, escaped from the limelight because I deleted that account in like January just because I there was just a lot of attention, a lot of yeah. eyes on me very quickly. Like at its peak, it had 21,000 followers. I just, there was a lot and I, I couldn't tweet anything without um, just like things getting political. So I just took a step back and then I created a much smaller account um, mm -hmm. and then um, like the people that want to follow me have followed me and it's slowly yeah. gaining traction, but it's like uh, 1400 followers. It's not big yeah. in comparison. Okay. Yeah. Um, how, how old are you, Casey? If you, if you don't mind. Uh, 22. Okay. So you kind of grew up in a very online social space, like from probably being pretty young. Yeah. Um, I didn't really start using online stuff until probably middle school. Um, and even so I wasn't as involved in like a lot of like online subcultures. Like I never really went on Tumblr. I didn't mm -hmm. really go on Reddit. I was more of kind of a passive observer. Um, yeah. like I played some online games, but, um, you know, they were kind of like the pretty tame kitty ones. Um, I mostly just like watched a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I sometimes wonder about like what it might be like to to be like that passive observer, because I know a lot of people are like not everyone is online, like sharing all their personal details. Like it's a certain personality type that kind of does that. But like even before you became like Casey Miller, like in this detransition role, you probably watched people online get taken down for all kinds of like minor offenses and or like get blasted on social media for like sharing a foible of life you know like I, I do wonder if you are a sensitive person who's watching all this stuff i do wonder how that impacts like your own sense of do you question yourself do you second guess every opinion or thought like i i think i would have been like that had i grown up in that kind of online space so i don't know I don't know if that makes sense, but it's interesting because it wasn't uh, ironically enough. Um, I knew that there was like internet drama and so on. Um, but I had 
never and I, I knew cyberbullying and all that stuff was a thing, but I was not aware of what quite the internet was capable of until it happened to me, which was kind of an even ruder shock. Um, um, of course, now I've uh, watched some documentaries on, you know, people and like cyberbullying and trolling, especially at like the dawn of the internet, like um, yeah. late 2000s, 2010s, and like, like certain internet personalities. And now I'm more aware that this is just kind of the pattern of, you know, people see a target, they um, can pick them apart. The deluge of trolls will just come out of the woodwork and just latch onto every single little thing that this person does. Mm -hmm. um, so I've recognized the patterns at this point, but when it happened to me, it was something I, well, that was pretty foreign to me at the time. Uh, Did you, what was the distance between you and the internet when all that attention um, landed on you? Um, like I used Discord a little bit. I watched YouTube, but I didn't really like share anything. I didn't have any active social media accounts. Like I had an Instagram, but I used it to just follow people. I never posted. I never had um, like any sort of page remotely associated with me, remotely associated with my image before. And then I just kind of opened that up on a whim. Um, and I decided to use my image and that. Weren't you in like a yarn barn parking lot or something? Um, it wasn't Yarn Barn. I had, it was like a strip mall, like a newer strip mall. So and it was outside of Starbucks. Winsomely, you're in your car. You're like, hey, look, this is what testosterone's done to my head. This yeah. Is, this is where I am. Um, and at that point, I was kind of, I was like grappling and I'm like, wow, I've, you know, I've done this whole transition thing. It was supposed to help. And, you know, I thought I felt better, but now I'm starting to question why I transitioned. And I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm detransitioning, but I definitely uh, was uh -huh. in a full state of regret. Um, and people are like, oh, just, you know, detransition, just go back to living as a woman. It's going to be super easy because you are like, uh, you're probably just like this beautiful, amazing young woman and nobody passes when they transition. So I just got fed up. And I posted oh. that to suppose it was supposed to be like, yeah, um, no, I've taken hormones for almost five uh -huh. years it has permanent masculinization like this isn't going to be easy and then that just uh -huh. so you started at 16 um so i got evaluated at 16 but it was like two months before i turned 17 and then like i turned 17 and then i like immediately after i started hormones just to combat the uh, consistent, even to this day, statement that this never happens to youth. This doesn't happen oh, no. to children. Of course not. It never happens until it does. Yeah, no, I was evaluated at 16, two appointments, 90 minutes between myself and my mom. Um, got a letter for testosterone, started testosterone shortly after turning 17. Six months later, to the day, I had a double mastectomy. Still 17. And by the time before I turned 18, all of my um, legal records were changed over. Birth certificate, driver's license, health insurance, everything. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot, and it's very fast. Yeah. Yeah, so I, and like, oh, it takes all, all this time, and they make you do all of this therapy. No, she was ticking off boxes. That's, that's what it was. It's so. really tough. Um, I watched this, um, this thing that a parent sent me, it was like this debate between detransitioners and people who had transitioned. I can't remember the name of it now. I don't know if you oh, guys is it have the, seen it. Uh, video by Jubilee. 
Yes. Middle ground. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Middle ground. It was really interesting because one thing I keep hearing is like by the end of that video, you know, detransitioners were talking to people who had transitioned and were happy with their transition just as like a summary. And then, you know, I think people who transitioned successfully sometimes like had a hard time trying to figure out like, well, what did go wrong in, in these cases? And you could kind of see them like, oh, well, I blame, I blame the therapist. And then they were like, well, I, your parents were responsible for what happened to you under their care. And like, they were like, well, you, you should have gotten evaluated. And, and people were like, no, I did. Like I legit have a diagnosis. And they're like, well, no, that's a misdiagnosis. And like, it's so interesting to see like how people are trying to work out in the case of a person who feels like their transition was harming them, what did go wrong? And it's like, it's hard to reach a consensus because there are a lot of built in like assumptions in the whole narrative of like going to get evaluated, getting a diagnosis, having a doctor like refer you for endocrinology or whatever the steps are. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just found it super interesting because the people who had transitioned, you could tell they were like genuinely in some moments, like really compassionate about like what the detransitioners had experienced. Like they were really like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But there's a real breakdown in like, well, what went wrong exactly? Like what, you know, and I'm wondering for, for you, Casey, I imagine this will continue to evolve as you, you know, move forward with your life and think about your experience. But what do you think in your particular story? What did go wrong for you? Um, so that that's a great question. Um, and, and this is something that I thought about as well, because I was completely unquestioning, I was about to say unquestioning in my um, and firm in my mm -hmm. faith for five solid years. And it, it is kind of a bit of faith. Mm -hmm. um, why it worked for so long, whereas some people, you know, they go maybe a couple years or they start testosterone, they last several months, and then they're just like, this isn't for me. Um, but why it worked so well and why I would, I seem to be happier. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's because I, I, you know, at the time I genuinely believed this is what I needed to do, that, that I absolutely needed to do this. Otherwise I would have killed myself because I was suicidal at the time that I was evaluated. Like we were debating between the first appointment and the second appointment at the gender clinic, whether or not I needed to go back inpatient because I was a risk to myself. That's how suicidal I was. Um, you know, so I, I, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed most of the changes of testosterone. So I was trying to rack my brain. And I think what really did it for me was I started to really ask, well, why did I do this? It, what mm -hmm. if it wasn't just because I had, you know, I have this mythical brain of a man and that, you know, I have the soul of a man that I was supposed to do it. What other reason could there have been? And when I realized that child sexual abuse on top of being a gender non-conforming lesbian and mm -hmm. not wanting to be perceived as gay that's mm -hmm. when just the house crumbled or the you know the walls just fell down for me because i was it just took on a so much more sinister take you know before it was like, oh, I'm living as my true self. I'm, you know, coming towards myself. I'm, you know, just being who I was meant to be. And it's, oh my God, I'm hiding. That's what this was. This was all an act to protect myself. And it, it you know, it's not authentic. And it worked because people, you know, treated me normally because I looked normal. Um, 
and that that's when everything kind of changed for me was there a so i'm so sorry i'm like just asking casey all these questions is that okay or do you have Benjamin, do you have questions? It's, it's my show, but it's your stage, Sasha. <laughs> okay. Well, I just, I'm so curious, like, why did you start asking yourself those questions? Was there something that happened? Because it, it was like, you were telling yourself this story, you're moving along, everything was working, but then why did you start asking those questions? Honestly, um, people have mixed views about Buck, but I, part of my Instagram that I had was I was following like some trans people and like, you know, FTM fitness pages and stuff. And I also followed Buck Angel and he started posting around September, October um, about detransitioners. Well, he was probably posting about it before, but that was when I started noticing it. And that was also around when Standards of Care 8 came out mm -hmm. and I read them or I read part of them. I haven't read all 200 plus pages of it, but I remember reading it and yeah. going, oh my God, this is insane. Yeah. They've just yeah. gone completely off the rails um, and obviously being concerned. But it, it was interesting because I was looking at it and I'm like, but at least I did it the right way. You know, I went to a, mm. a world-class clinic and I got evaluated and I got my diagnosis of gender dysphoria, all that stuff. But then um, eventually, like I just saw it in my feed enough times like just talking about like the pediatric gender transition and all that stuff that i then i saw trans against groomers when it was an entity that existed and gays against groomers and i started following them it was a slow introduction um to other people's stories and then when i got on twitter i was like a trans ally so like i was secure in my identity i was kind of questioning it but i wasn't really questioning it i didn't um think i was a detransitioner um but then I read enough people's stories because I'm like, okay, who are these detransitioners? I should follow them so we can try and, you know, build like cohesive relationships because trans people just treat them like crap for no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. After talking to enough of them, Prisha was the first one that I talked to at length. I was like, we've got way too many similarities here. And it scared me. And instead of pushing it away, I'm like, I've got to look at this. Um, and that's when the self-inquiry started. Was there a temptation to get defensive, to go on the offensive uh, when you uh, encountered information that began to challenge your belief system? Interestingly enough, no. Previously, I, I would have. Um, I, I don't know what it was about where I was at mentally. Um, I, I was in like a pretty okay space. Like it wasn't great, it wasn't the worst. Um, but I was like in a pretty okay spot, um, that I, I actually didn't get defensive and I was willing to do that self inquiry and be open to outside information. But then also once I have a certain thought that is intriguing to me, or, um, I, I just, for some reason want to perseverate on it, I will not stop thinking about it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's in my head, whether I like it or mm -hmm. not. And that's apparently thinking, well, what else could this be? That was one of those thoughts and that's how i got to this point because i just wouldn't stop thinking about it until i got to the root of okay why why did i do this I, i've been thinking a lot lately about like the power of story and the narrative that we tell ourselves about all kinds of aspects of our experiences and i think it's really interesting that your road towards detransition looks really similar to a lot of young people I've worked with their road into transition in the first place. It's like, I've been hearing these things about trans people, 
I wonder why they're so marginalized. Let me go and kind of investigate this question. Oh, let me talk to some trans people or let me read more about transition and like, oh, my God, there are too many similarities there that I should actually pursue this. And like, it's so interesting that having like an open mind and an open heart can lead you into lots of different stories, whether you're on your way into transition or out of transition, like that's incredibly similar sounding. And I don't know if that was your experience, but I'll just say like from young people I've worked with, that's how a lot of it starts. So is there like, in your experience, has there been a, a tangible difference between like the kind of story that you're telling yourself now about your experience versus like when you were starting to identify as trans, like the kind of story you were telling yourself then? It, does it feel different? Like, um, it's a really profound question. Um, so back when I first discovered trans, which the way I discovered it was, um, I typed in, I hate being a girl. And why do I hate being a girl into Google and YouTube? And, um, of course, you know, even in 2017, you're going to get trans stuff, uh, back then. And like the first video that I ever really saw, like, cause I had no idea medical transition was a thing. I thought it was just like, you know, people like dressing up as the opposite sex stereotype mm -hmm. and just, mm -hmm. you know, going around and, you know, screaming about pronouns. I didn't realize that testosterone and surgery was a thing. And then I saw an op-ed from the New York Times of a transgender couple that passed extremely well. And I saw the man, Logan Ireland, and I was like, holy crap, that's possible. Um, and, and that's just where I dove in. And, it, you know, it's interesting because you know, when you're reading about like signs that you're always meant to be trans and like, you know, childhood stuff, I, I remember thinking, oh, that explains why I felt this way and that way and X, Y, and Z, which I've done in retrospect with um, other things I've gone through, like finally when I pushed and got formally or yeah, formally diagnosed with ADHD because I would always have issues keeping track of assignments no matter what I did. Um, you know, I'd always like lose focus in conversations, but then at the same time, like I could hyper focus if I was really fixated onto something and just like lock in for seven hours straight. There, you know, there's certain things if you're um you, you discover certain parts about yourself where you're just like, oh that explains it. That explains all that stuff. And that's what it felt like with trans. Um, with D-Trans, I, I was able to kind of, I, I think I had more of a reverence for it. Like I, oh. I, I didn't have that same attitude of, oh, well, you know, I'm D-Trans. So like that explains like all these different oh. things and all that oh. stuff. Um, I, I was more, I'm still more in like the observation stage, if you will, of just kind of looking and processing what I've done over the past five years. I, I'm not. I don't know. I think a little bit differently about it, but also maybe that's because I'm 22 and not 17. <laughs> yeah. No, our clinging, our clinging to cause in my own life, my clinging or my searching for a cause for myself or my behavior uh, has lessened. Also, the the desire for destiny and my ambition too. So, I think part of it is that we are, as we're young, we're, we're assembling ourselves, and so everything has to have a meaning. Right. And then once we kind of get over ourselves and get used to ourselves, then that meaning can be more malleable or not as necessary. Um, also, 
we live in a culture that's highly narcissistic and I think is lacking your generation lacks a sense of future and a sense of ambition one because of stimulus and two because of the stories of the end of the world or whatever. We're kind of going through a millennial phase of like the apocalypse is nigh. Um, so all of that energy to create yourself doesn't have a direction to go other than back into yourself, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm not meant to do something. I'm meant to be something is um, the more predominant kind of narrative form. And then that also explains in Sasha, we've talked about this too, like the gravity of diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm this, I'm, I'm autistic, I'm, I'm an ADHD. And it's one thing for that to, to help you uh, manage your behavior, but it becomes an identity. It becomes a thing in itself. Um, and for certain of those characters, certain of those personality types are even more drawn into c- trying to concretize labels into reality as, as a means to make sense of reality rather than just kind of using them as tools to become idols. You know, I just, um, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead, Casey. Well, Talk over each other. I want to hear that. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing something because when I was following people on Instagram, um, I had a period of time where I was essentially homebound, um, like in 2021, like summer 2021 to like, uh, well, not tw- summer 2021. Sorry. It started like summer 2022. I had like a really bad flare with POTS. I have POTS and EDS, um, which if you, you, know, you probably know Stephanie Wim, it's the same thing that she has. It's, it sucks. Um, you just get really lightheaded and chronic fatigue in the EDS. There's chronic joint pain. Well, I, I was in a really bad spot and I was following a lot of, this sounds really tacky and really Gen Z of me to say, but chronic illness influencers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, people that document it. Yeah, it's a whole mm-hmm, thing, but mm-hmm. there's this entire subculture that I even mm-hmm. saw with that, that I, I, you know, would see with mental illness as well, where, you know, it's kind of like the sharing of the pronouns, but you put like all of your diagnoses in your profile and you're, you know, tailoring content and talking about, you know, it's one thing to talk about, yeah, this is the struggle of somebody that, you know, deals with this stuff where we call ourselves spoonies um, and all that stuff. But then it's another that like literally the entire page, all of your interactions in that community were flavored based on the diagnoses that people had. And one thing that also really made me scratch my head was I was, you know, there was some dialogue about like, okay, like who has disability, who doesn't have disability? Because you could be chronically ill, but not fully disabled. Like, where do we draw the line? Because then there's legal disability and then just, you know, Mm -hmm. like the ability to engage in activities of daily living. But then I would see some people say, well, do you identify as somebody with a disability? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is not something you Mm -hmm. identify as. This is, is the physical state of your conditions does that necessitate you know that are you like disabled to a point where it's a detriment to your life is that like you know an actual label that you can use this isn't can you identify into it this isn't well do you feel disabled i mean it's part of it but like that that was an interesting observation i had that like seeing it on the mental health side of like oh you know autism ad or adhd when like you get autism and adhd and like cluster b and all of my eating disorders like all in the profile and the sharing of pronouns but then to see it even in the physical like chronic illness space that was a little trippy well you say space but it's cyberspace still yeah, so cyberspace, the only way yeah. for it to mean something is that there's identities shuffling it's, it's, it's just it's a it's a mode of meaning making within the 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 medium is the message 
Like that, that's what's kind of causing that because we're, we are disapparated. So the identity is the key, the sign, the flag, mm -hmm. the gender, which yeah. means genre, which just means a, a genre. Yeah. I, I think that also like being exposed to that coming like into September of last year kind of made me really look critically because I'm like, hold on, this isn't like something you can identify into. This is like, you know, physical illness thing. Like you can't just identify as somebody with a disability. Like that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. But then realizing that the roots were gender identity, gender ideology, that that's where that will do you identify as X, Y, or Z. And that's when the wheels, that's also why the wheels started turning. Anyways, that's that was just an observation that I had. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think too, like we, we, we definitely, I, I feel this weird thing has happened to me because I was born in the early eighties. And so I, I grew up really without the ubiquitousness, the ubiquity of the internet and Google searches. And like, I feel myself have this weird experience where like, if I'm having a, a chat with my fiance or like friends and anything comes up that I there's a missing piece of information about it. I just reach my, for my phone and I look it up. And over the course of my personal lifetime, that is new because that was not even a possibility when I was younger. And like, I really think this desire to close the loop on any missing information is kind of messing with our ability to sit with ambiguity or difficult feelings or confusing experiences or quirks and there's like a gift and a curse. Like it's really great that we have so many labels and definitions and explanations. And like, you can easily pull up an article on any of these kind of experiences and have tons of answers and tons of like cohesive explanations, but also, and we've talked about this, Benjamin, like what about just like, hmm, that that's weird. Like, you know, I, I sat there and played that video game for 12 hours. That was deeply engrossing. You know, like that objectively is just an experience that somebody can have. And there's lots of different ways to look at it. It could be like, this is an experience of hyper-focus. Hyper-focus is part of the ADHD, you know, diagnosis in which a person spends an extended amount of time. Like there's there's that. And then there's also just like, Sometimes I get sucked into video games for a long ass time and I have to like, you know, get outside or whatever. And like, it's just interesting because those are similar ways of looking at the same thing, but they, they, they take us in slightly different directions about like, well, what do I do about it? You know? So I'm just so curious about like all of these individuals who feel themselves to have a disability, either with a legit diagnosis or without, it's like, how does that story we have about ourselves impact? Like, what do we do with that thing? You know, I, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. It's just so interesting. Well, I mean, added to that is the direction that the medical industry is going is that if you do identify with a disability, the doctors will give you that. They, they will pretty soon. Um, they'll amplify more than genitals, but that WPATH uh, standards of care eight now is is justifying the removal of a penis regardless of gender identity just you are a eunuch we will help you manifest your disability um 
Yeah, I mean, I will say locally, because there was one point where I thought I needed, like, um, not a handicap placard, but, like, a thing that you can hang on your mirror um, to give you access to handicap parking. And, like, I was using a cane. I was unable to stand for extended periods of time, braced up, and my doctor still refused me. <laughs> he said, huh. no, like, you're not you're not getting it. And luckily, I've gotten better where I don't need that anymore. Um, but even... Like my experiences of just getting a POTS diagnosis, it took over five doctors. Most of them wouldn't test for anything. They said, you're too young. Um, you know, standard labs are coming back fine. So I, hopefully we're, we're farther away from them just like going with the self-identification of disability um, yeah. in, in the medical complex. But yeah, I can, I can understand that. I could understand with how that could progress. Your doctor denying you the handicap uh, access to the handicap spaces. Um, was he uh, was he doubting your pain, or was he saying no? You're resilient enough to do this. You're, you're it's actually good for you to to walk a little bit further. Yeah. Well, the thing I was using it for was I um, wanted to have it in case because like I was going to medical appointments, but oftentimes like I would go and it was busy and I'd have to park out back. But the, there was a potential risk of me passing out between my car and getting to the door because I was bad enough um, with like the syncope and so on. So it wasn't a pain thing. It was like, will I hit the ground, okay. you know, between now and then. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not going to use it all the time, but in case that I need it, especially from seeking medical care, you know, maybe especially cause at the time it was really bad. Like I could have that. And he's like, eh, you'll, you'll work through it, <laughs> which I, I did, but you know, it was, I, I didn't fret too much about it though. Can I ask Casey? And I know that you're obviously this is a really um, personal for you, but are you aware that there's any controversy around POTS diagnoses? Like, I don't know much about what POTS is. Um, so there, there is a good bit of controversy. There's, I mean, people are, it, people are becoming more informed about it, but there's a good number of doctors that don't believe it exists because the problem is it doesn't really show up on that many tests. Um, like you would have to do something called a tilt table test where um, heart rate and blood pressure is tracked um, and you're like strapped to a table that starts out like upright or it starts out like laying and like you slowly change positions and your blood pressure and heart rate is tracked over a longer period of time. Um, because with uh, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, postural orthostatic means like when you're changing positions, so like going from lying to sitting to sitting to standing, tachycardia is increased heart rate. Um, you know, you would typically see an increase in heart rate substantial enough as well as a drop in blood pressure. Um, but it's a specific test. You know, you, you have to have a facility nearby that has the tilt table, which I would assume that any healthcare system probably would. But people would have to know to test for it. POTS doesn't show up on any standard blood test. Um, if the person is sitting down, their blood pressure might be fine. Um, if they don't, it, I like it's it's not something that you would find on typical diagnostic stuff and it it's all symptom report so it's not well, like you know they can like do an echo of your heart and see it there's nothing like that it's just going based off of what people are saying and of course when you're younger like me and the doctors here they go well you're too young to have heart problems and nothing's showing up on labs so you know just drink more water and exercise are there, there causal a, mechanisms? Like, what is it supposedly caused by? 
Um, so POTS is a dysautonomic disorder. So it's a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system um, where, I mean, there's multiple mechanisms for it, but in, we're thinking in my case, basically the blood vessels, um, you know how they um, constrict and vasodilate depending on certain stimuli and so on. Well, in POTS, um, when the autonomic nervous system dysfunct like is dysfunctional, um, they don't constrict properly. So they're just perpetually vasodilated, which means um, that it takes a lot more blood to pump through your system to oxygenate. Um, it long and I, I don't know how to describe it, but long and short, you're dealing with larger pipes, same blood volume. So oxygenation goes down, blood pressure goes down in order to compensate, your heart starts pumping more. So you deal with tachycardia that could come with arrhythmia where your heart's just kind of doing its own thing. Um, and because of the lack of blood flow, that could result in presyncope or syncope or passing out. Did, when did this start happening? Do you know to your, um, so I got like my first major flare two months into nursing school which for me was October, 2021. And leading up to that, I was pretty stressed. I was having some like irregular heartbeats, which we found in a, um, like in an assessment class where we were, you know, learning, oh, this is how you do the cardiovascular assessment. And they're listening to the different points of the heart. And the student was like, uh, your heart's irregular. And I'm like, no, it's not. So the instructor comes over and listens to it. And she's like, uh, yeah, it's irregular. Like, all the time you should probably go to a doctor <laughs> oh wow and, and i did but we determined it was stress and then um i just got hit with the first wave of crippling fatigue and brain fog and all of that stuff afterwards what was the crippling fatigue and brain fog before you learned about this pots diagnosis or had you looked into it by then um it was before it just completely came out of nowhere i was Lifting five days a week, I was easily clocking 15 plus thousand steps a day. You know, I was really healthy, um, like, and, and doing all of that stuff. Probably the healthiest I'd ever been. And it just blindsided me. Hmm. Super interesting. I mean, sounds very, very tiring and exhausting and difficult. Yeah. Well, just, now just... I know what it is. So it's, it's a lot easier to manage. But yeah, yeah. at the time it was special. <laughs> That was my question about managing it before, but uh, does testosterone has a different effect on the female form? I know it changes the vocal cords. Does it change the heart muscles? Do either of you know if it grows the heart? So it's affecting every cell in your body, right? I would guess that heart enlargement, you know, compared to the average female would be a risk and or something that occurred it would be interesting i actually did have an echocardiogram done um like it was like a full echo and they commented that my heart was the average male size i'm not an expert on amp and wow, physiology but i think that on average men's hearts tend to be maybe slightly larger than women's hearts again anatomical variation it, it between sure doesn't feel like that emotionally oh, no. <laughs> um, but also interestingly like there's um male and female ranges for like certain things on like the um complete blood count and uh well mostly the complete blood count but um like uh hemoglobin not hemoglobin but like uh hematocrit um red blood cell white blood cell um like certain values like that that are actually different between male and female and having been on testosterone all of my values went up to the male range wow mm. of course yeah makes sense 
And so, so specifically with the diagnosis of POTS, what do you do with that diagnosis? Like, is it an identity? Is it a management problem? Or it's a, it's an understanding. I'm sure that there's a psychological value to having that diagnosis, but then there's um, also like some sort of physical thing that you can do about it or some sort of behavioral thing that you can do. Um, so identity wise, I'll touch on that after I get to like the physical side, um, knowing that you have POTS or something that sounds like POTS or dysautonomia or something like that is helpful because there are some like non-pharmacological, um, lifestyle changes specifically tailored to dealing with that that do help. So one thing that, and this always scares every doctor that I go to is um, increased salt and fluid intake. So at my worst, like when I was like really in a flare and were to come out of it, I was eating um, eight grams of sodium a day and drinking six liters of water. So one and a half gallons. Um, the RDA for sodium is about two to three grams a day. And I was eating probably, well, almost four times that my blood pressure was fine i was tracking it the whole time um, but that's to help increase um, fluid volume to offset the vasodilation that's happening so people don't get as lightheaded um, there's certain like salt products that are specifically tailored for people with pots etc do you have like a salt lick next to your bed every every morning you know, i don't have a salt <laughs> lick i don't have the bottle on my desk but there's, there's that's like a, a necklace that casey <laughs> wears and this is like <laughs> yeah no it's yeah I, I, you do your I rosary the pet <laughs> like store this. and i go into the rodent section and i get like a little salt <laughs> wheel and i just put it on a necklace and Every, you know, at different parts of the day. Sorry, guys, I'm feeling lightheaded. <laughs> it's it's like a weird kind of diabetes. It's kind of but, like you go to a rave and people have like candy necklaces yeah. and all kinds of weird like drug-related paraphernalia, but like Casey has a little salt lick. Yeah, no, it, well, it's interesting too because like when I was at like one of my old jobs and I would like stop like on break and, you know, I'm just popping these pills that like, you know, these white pills like en masse just like eight at a time. People are like, what? And I'm like, I swear it's not drugs. And they're like, what is it? I'm like, it's salt. And then they also still look at me weird. And I'm like, well, it's not drugs. I don't know why you're, why you're looking Wait, at me. salt like pills? That. Like they're just like sodium tablets? Like, yeah. Um, okay. Um, well, I, yeah, it's better than like just squirting saline solution in a bag into your mouth all the whole day long. I guess you could do that too. That's yeah. Just well, like, I at, at first I ate straight up salt. That was <laughs> not fun. Your stomach doesn't like it either. Anyways, yeah, the no. benefit of knowing that you probably have, you know, some, some sort of dysautonomic issue or POTS is that there are certain products that are specifically tailored to those people. Okay. That you know, for instance, your stomach doesn't hurt all the time because you're just eating teaspoons of salt. Like and you can consume the amount that you need. And, um, you know, there's certain compression garments and like certain resources. Like binders? Um, Full circle no, here. Well, like yeah. um, compression socks. Oh, socks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes. Oh, you just have a sloth on your back, just like hugging you tightly all day long. Um, no, I do not. <laughs> um, like, like there's, there's certain things in certain approaches and some trial and error from people that have these conditions of like hey i tried this brand it works well or you know there's there's certain information that you know when you know what to search for on the internet you can find it and it's really helpful but then on the identity side there is kind of this like weird subculture 
of like potsies as they call them or people with dysautonomia and then that intersects with the people like it all like intersects with a bunch of different illnesses so like that intersects with the people that have like gastroparesis as well as like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome versus like other connective tissue disorders versus like mast cell activation syndrome and like the you know it just kind of piles on top of each other and they're kind of like their own little groups but then they also interact with each other and sometimes you have membership to multiple groups because you have multiple conditions and yeah it, yeah. wow this is a lot like gender stuff <laughs> that's what no, i'm realizing talking about it it's the human be it's like a it's literally like culture like in in the sense of like some sort of fungus um there there's the there's the I guess like just to make a metaphor, there's the, there's the tree, which would be the topic. And then the humans kind of populate the topic and start to make lichens and, and kind of infect it with like a, a cultural flavor. We do that wherever we are on the planet. Yeah. And of course yeah. we're going to do that on the internet too. We're just going to add flavor to it. The thing about this thing, and I'm sorry to bring the conversation here. We can jump out of it as soon as I say this point, the thing about the, what we call wokeness, whatever that thing is, is that it's very adaptive to go into any given group and kind of take it over and, and formulate these hierarchies of, of oppression and of, uh, just certain sort of legitimacy, mm. authenticity, policing, mm -hmm. um, and then, and then a very, uh, an enforced sort of empowerment of certain sort of dark triad traits or tendencies that are mm -hmm. alive already in the culture, but it's just an imbalance. Wokeness could be thought of as a, some sort of autonomic, um, uh, this dysregulation of, of the body politic of, of, of any given culture kind of, or, or like a cancer, somebody, you can say it's like a cancer. It always replicates the certain form wherever it goes. And then it leaves the husk of that flavorfulness and that distinction, that difference, that pungency of all these different kind of you know, cultures, they all kind of become uniform. And um, so it, it, it kind of decreases uh -huh. the fun factor in a way. As well as kind of turning everything kind of judgy. Yeah, true. And um, and then it also kind of sets up the groundwork. You know, the, the wokeness invades these other communities. And, you know, all of a sudden you start out as, oh, I have this one condition. Oh, I'm looking into these other conditions. So I'm meeting people with these other conditions. And then slowly but surely I saw like people that were trans identifying people who wanted to transition more people were saying oh well maybe maybe i'm gender queer you start to see like this intersection happen but because you already have that framework there the uh -huh. the join is seamless uh -huh. yeah yeah so when you were describing um your frustration with the communities trying to turn a physical ailment into an identity that you could identify into which is a very i think it's kind of a a new kind of verb I, i've been swimming in the soup for so long it's still just like that's so novel like what that's a verb now you identify into something um it's novel but um did you ever call people out or call the thing as like hold on guys and how were you treated whenever you would raise your hand or were you just like not raise your hand i was, I was pretty hands-off but there were a couple times where i was like hold on like not speaking legally about like um like legally definition of disability and like getting like social security and all that stuff like 
you can't identify into a physical illness but i mean there there are some people that were like yeah definitely like you know we're not co-opting it like these are like we actually have like profound illness and it really does impact our day-to-day life and we feel comfortable using the term disabled to describe that but then there were other people that were saying well you can't tell me how i feel and you're just trying to tell me that it's worse than it already is and well well there's a balance of listening to people and you know Mm -hmm taking their experiences seriously because maybe maybe it is as bad i've you know been to enough doctors who were telling me that i was just overreacting and i was having trouble standing but because i didn't look like it they weren't listening i i know what it's like to not be listened to and i don't want to do that but at the same time there there has to be a reality check like uh, yeah but you do realize that like there there's people that are wheelchair bound that call themselves disabled and you're mostly able to function most of the time and you also want to claim that title it's also kind of bad that it's like a matter of titles, but then it's, you know, where do you draw the line? Like, what is the definition? I wasn't, it wasn't like with gender stuff still where, where you just get like all of this pushback. It was, I, I didn't talk about it much, but there was like some pushback, but most of it was just like, yeah, we do need to have like a concrete definition of it. What's a woman, Sasha? (laughs) No, 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 no. We're not going there. No. I mean, I have to say that I I am often very cautious about diagnoses that blend somatic experiences and psychological symptoms and it's really tricky for me um it 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 just feels really complicated like um a we know that people can experience physical distress physical distress that doesn't have like a very clear solid cause so it's real like the distress is real the symptoms are real but it's hard to know where it comes from. And I'll tell you, like, um, I am a, more comfortable saying, look, this is a physical experience that we don't quite understand. Then sometimes, and I'm not saying this with POTS, but like I'm reminded of like conversations I've had with like certain people about like their kids' diagnoses and stuff, where when you try to understand what this is, there's some vague explanation about like, brain inflammation or like something that doesn't actually have any legitimate scientific meaning, but it's like, you want it to sound scientific. And that's kind of what has happened. I think with gender dysphoria, like, no, the brains are literally different. Like you don't have to say that for the gender dysphoria to be real. In my opinion, I'm much more comfortable with people saying like, look, I don't know why I feel this way, but it's like incredibly powerful. And this has been my experience. Um, rather than like, well, no, my brain's literally different. Look at the scan. Like what? That's not, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if, if POTS has anything to do with that, but it's really interesting. Like to hear you talk about like the vasodilation It's like, yeah, okay. Blood vessels, like expanding, contracting, like clearly the symptoms are real and palpable and impact people's lives. And like, they need help. And if the salt works great, but I'm, I'm, I just have to be honest. Like I get a little bit like skeptical about scientific sounding explanations that are like 
very psychological as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's really interesting to me because there's lots of different conditions like that. Yeah, no. And and like the other thing with bots too is that, I, I mean, it, if I, I can flare it by just really overexerting myself and not planning, not properly hydrating, but I can mm. also flare it in times of extreme psychological distress. So there is a psychological component mm. and I am I'm I'm more aware of that. And so okay, we we move to stress management, lifestyle management, like how do I you know not get super duper stressed? And if I do get super duper stressed, what do I have to try and pull me out of it so I don't just start passing out everywhere? Mm. Um you know, at least with pots, like there are some clinical manifestations like if you know i did like a 10 minute um like lying to standing test um at my worst where like you lie on the ground for five minutes and you um, track your heart rate record it for every minute and then like you st just go straight to standing in every minute for 10 minutes you record your heart rate and one of the um clinical guidelines technically for pots is if your heart rate exceeds it's either 100 or 120 beats per minute um like in that 10 minute time period um just from standing then that might be an indication that something's going on and mm -hmm. mine did pretty quickly and it, mm -hmm. it maintained and then when i laid back down it went right back down to baseline um, super interesting so there, there are some yeah clinical like they're there i mean not clinical i keep saying clinical there are some like actual like trackable data points mm -hmm. um but it's like weird little tests that you got to do but i i also recognize that there is a, a psychological component to it as well and i don't fault people for saying that but then like yeah with the whole gender dysphoria thing i think what got me through for five years was i legitimately believed i had the brain of a man um and also just like a small nitpick that i have um like when people say like, you know, gender um, affirming care is medically necessary and life-saving and like the, the medically necessary, when I hear medically necessary, okay, this person is going to experience a negative outcome and a worsening of physical condition if they uh -huh. don't get this treatment. But, you know, say in a double mastectomy, if, if you're not doing it for any reason related to like breast cancer or anything like that, and it is like, you know, it's healthy tissue and it's purely just aesthetic, that, like the person's condition is not going to get worse sheerly by having breasts so yeah. it's it's not medically necessary in the sense that like you know the person's going to die if they don't do it because people say well what about diabetes like if diabetics type 1 diabetics don't take their insulin you know they're they're going to die yeah because their body's going to stop working and they're going to go into like diabetic yeah. ketoacidosis. like your their body's going to malfunction yeah. but your body like a woman's body is not going to malfunction mm -hmm. if she just keeps having breasts like that's not how that works so there's there's something else at play and that kind of like the, the medically necessary really bothers me when i think about that because i'm like it's it's healthy tissue like but i don't i don't understand that's what i mean like i wish we could be more honest like it would be fair to say some people believe that for their psychological well-being they need to have this mastectomy that's an honest statement it is not a medical necessity it's a felt psychological necessity for some like i'm all about like let's just be much more honest with our word usage so that we don't end up creating this like almost like a, a a monster of fake scientific sounding things that aren't actually true and then when those things crumble the whole thing crumbles and i'm like well some people are are maybe benefiting from transition i'm open to that possibility 
but you don't have to base it on a foundation that isn't even real at all. Like you can just base it on for me, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, this is a pathway that I chose to take like great, but don't say it was a medical necessity when it's not. Or um, the other thing too, is like people say, well, if you're letting them go through, um, like if you're letting trans kids go through the puberty of like their birth sex, like you're poisoning them, their body. Uh, oh, this is one I've right. heard um, right. like where people think like, oh, well, my brain is of the opposite sex. So my body knows yeah. that it's receiving the wrong hormones, according to my brain. Therefore, I am actively being poisoned so long as I am not on cross-sex hormones and or blockers. They're, That's a trippy one. Yeah, it, uh, it is. And mm. it doesn't it doesn't make any sense when you're not viewing it like with like the ro the rainbow tinted glasses, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Can I ask, are you still working out? Um, so I had to take a break for a while. Um, I'm slowly getting back into it though. I, I'm gonna focus more on like hypertrophy stuff for now but i did i i saw that you power lift i did do powerlifting stuff for a while i'm actually in a hypertrophy block i'm like ending it at the end of this week before i go to ireland so i've been oh, okay. like um focusing on that training but i've i started like lifting for strength for the first time this year though i've been lifting weights for a really long time but it's been really interesting to like actually try to develop that skill and it's been really fun for me um, and you said you follow a lot of like fitness influencers. I follow this one influencer called Momo Muscle. Do you know her? She's oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. masculine, like really, really cute. And she has like all these little cute Instagram videos. Yeah. Um, I don't follow. I mean, I follow um, like a lot of like female strength athletes um, now because I, I want to have that positive representation because yeah. for the longest time I thought women can't be strong. Only men can be strong. But then also just following a bunch of people who are like juiced to the gills on performance yeah. enhancing drugs all the time is a really good way to give yourself body dysmorphia. <laughs> totally. Um, so now, but I, you know, I just follow like kick ass women that lift heavy weights and especially the ones that do it naturally. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. Like with, um, well, you said you do strength stuff. Are you planning on competing in a powerlifting meet or you just do it for fun? No, we're just doing it for fun. I mean, that's, that's cool. It's great. Lifting yeah. is great. Lifting heavy. You should compete, Sasha. No, I don't think, I, th I don't do think it, do it, if do I it. were to invest my energy in competition prep, it probably wouldn't be for that. It would probably be something more in like the dance world. Cause like it takes a lot of time and you have to be really dedicated, but are you thinking about ultimately like competing Casey? Um, well, I wanted to like a few years into transition. Of course I was, like holding off because I was like, okay, what federation am I allowed to compete in? It would have to be an untested division. Um, and like the whole thing with the USAPL, like, cause I was at USA powerlifting, which is like the powerlifting federation that was in the lawsuit with uh, Casey something or other with the trans woman that wanted to compete in the women's category. The USAPL is the United States' leading drug-free powerlifting federation. And, you know, like there's other federations that have drug free or drug tested divisions, but they're the crew de ta, they're the cream of the crop, they're the go to. But there's other federations that are untested, meaning anybody could be taking PEDs that you could self identify into 
Mm. Like, you know, trans women could be, compete in the women's division and they'd be allowed to do that in the untested divisions. So there are places where trans people or like even trans men on testosterone, they can compete and even try and try and go stealth um, a little harder with trans women. Maybe a trans men could mm. um, swing it and they won't be questioned. They can they can compete. They can set records. They can do stuff like Casey, whatever, could have competed in many other federations but specifically chose USAPL to go after. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't follow that whole controversy. Was that very recently? Um, so I think it was like 2017, 2018, 2019, some, or 2019 sounds right, where a uh, trans woman up in like northern U.S., like Minnesota, somewhere like that, um, like broke a state record in the women's category. And then USAPL was like, uh, yeah, maybe if you're not a woman, you shouldn't compete with the women. And then um, put like a trans ban, which is un untrue, basically, like trans women can't compete in the women's category because they're biologically men. And trans men, if they're taking testosterone, cannot compete because testosterone mm -hmm. is a banned substance. And nobody mm -hmm. that is taking mm -hmm. a banned substance, mm -hmm. even for therapeutic exemption, can compete. Yeah. You can compete in your birth sex category as long as you're not taking anything, but you can't you know, cross identify into things. And that was like a big point of contention for years. Oh, USAPL is transphobic. And then recently, um, like Fox News covered it where apparently there was a lawsuit and like the trans woman won. And um, somehow the USAPL was going to have to be forced to let people um, compete in the category that they identified with. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm um, not going to be able to find it. There was this there was this really telling confession by a trans woman. So it was very recent. I'm going to butcher. I can't find it. Um, I'm not going to waste your time trying to find it. But um, um, a man, there was a power lifting or some sort of lifting meet. A man goes in there, just a man, man saying, oh, I'm, I'm a woman. And he, and he just trounces everyone. And then there's a trans woman there who writes this confession where they're almost seeing, I understand that this is that that I might have some sort of advantage, but I but I'm polite and people are polite to me and and he's really rude. He was really rude about it. Like he was really rude about reality. And so like the, the reality was poking through this person's vision. And then because and that vision's reinforced by everybody agreeing with them and having to agree with uh -huh. them. And then, and then that it gets to stabilize. And I just, you see this person like fishing for, for that one thing that would save them from reality, which is politeness. It's like, that's the last harbinger. It's like, it's, we're going to be courteous with each other. And, and I think that that kind of goes back to something you were making me think about with regard to the limiting factor for identitarianism and all of its different, like how identity kind of takes over all of our diagnosis, the, the limiting factor is reality. And, and if reality can be escaped from, then identity will reign. And one of the, we know, Sasha, you know this, um, one of the detransitioners, one of the first detransitioners that I interviewed, Kiara, she, she, she's a D sister. She didn't transition, but she was really obsessed with the identity and her mom kicked her out of the house, sent her to work with horses and just, just meeting the be horses. Be careful the way you phrase that because people are so after Denise. She didn't kick her out of the house. <laughs> she, 
it's not the right sometimes thing. you gotta kick the kid to the curb i'm saying like no. this is this is the thing it's like like that masculine like daddy voice coming in like no you're you're out of the house you shape up go go dig a ditch you know and in, in our in our effeminized society you're like oh you're the child labor you're making the kid dig a ditch that's so bad of you to do that like, i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with physical labor i'm saying the word kicking a kid out of the house in the context of the like trans kids conversation is really important not to get wrong so anyway keep going no i know i you see I, what I, I'm I, saying? I take it no I, I i totally see what you're saying but i take exception to that because that is that's uh that's some sort of uh, there's got to be a term for that some sort of it's just it's a nasty nasty tactic of argument it, and it completely it kind of shows the underlying pressure in a lot of this gender debate of the missing man the man a good the good father the good patriarch the protector the provider and the discipliner is missing in a lot of these instances or or he is corrupt from the beginning you see that over and over and over again and part of the man's duty is to is to say you got to get your chin up kid you got to mm -hmm. go out there and you got to work. You, we're, I'm not going to indulge you. Like somebody mm -hmm. who says, I'm not going to indulge your delusions. It, he's, he's gone. He, he's the one that's been castrated before all these other, all these other young men have castrated themselves. Sorry to get so passionate about that, but I, I, I just push back against that argument. I'm like, no, the, the kid needs to go out there and meet reality and then their identity issues go away. The options, their authenticity, it dis their, their quest for authenticity disappears because they don't have any options. They have to do. They have to be. They have to engage. Get yeah. out of their freaking head. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I mean, that's my advice almost always to families is like, hold this young person to the same expectations of like contributing, doing something meaningful, being busy, like participating in school, doing what they got to do. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, there, there is this way that like, even the slightest indication of parental hesitation is treated like some sort of abuse. Like you have to be like leaning in with the most accepting, loving, positive, engaging, like, I get what you're saying that there's yeah. a place for Authority. The kind of stoic, like tough love, like let's get with reality attitude that fathers have often brought to the story. I, I see what you're saying. And it's, it's inconvenient. Men, men are very inconvenient. Not to make this about men, um, but men are very inconvenient in our present society, which is based on very highly technical jobs, very insulated livelihoods, like where, where the masculine energy is not, it doesn't jive well with being inside, working in a cubicle, going to school eight hours a day. You know, that thing needs to be diminished. And, and the harsher realities are just taken for granted because all that, all that energy is purposed to protect us from the harsher realities. But because we have so much technology protecting us, that's the inconvenient thing that needs to be kind of diminished. And then we have kids that don't have any sense of that. And, and we have a bunch of men, a bunch of fathers who aren't able to bring that to the kids and, and kind of starve their kids of that. Um, that's, that's just, it's one of the aspects of the gender crisis that um, is important to just bring up. So sorry to soapbox a little bit about that. But. Oh, it's definitely interesting. Um, just 
I mean, well, it is on the record, but for the record, I, my dad's been out of my life since like I was seven. So <laughs> I've, you know, this is, yeah. this is one thing that can happen if you have a fatherless home. My, my mother was definitely more stoic, but I, she would get to the point where if I, um, pushed back enough, she was just trying to, the, the baseline at some point became just keep me alive. As long Ooh. as she doesn't find me dead in my room, we're good. So anything's better than that. That's the that's the bar that we're having to step over here. Um, so it, you know, finally, like even with the gender stuff, at, at the first she was like, "What you're saying is crazy. Like what you're saying is not based in reality." She even gave all the bunch of alternatives of, well, you know, why do I? Why do you want to be a boy? Why do you um, try want to escape your womanhood? And both the reasons that she gave were absolutely dead on: child sexual abuse, homophobia. Um, but eventually, because I was just so persistent, and then you know the forty percent statistic that she got from the therapist of like, oh, if you don't do this, like your child is forty percent likely to kill themselves. That she finally just relented. And it would be interesting if I had a positive father figure in my life, if the story would have been different, hmm. or if there there's, could have been a potential for it. There's a pathological. Um... I mean, we need the men, men and women need each other. We need each other for balance. And you see a lot of the push for the transgender medicalization coming from women. A lot of it's from women. This is a very inconvenient fact for a lot of the feminists who have been early to end and have paid a lot of a lot in the way of reputation and time and money in this fight. But a lot of this is backed up by women. And I, there was this video that I think it's kind of old, but uh, it was floating around today on Twitter where there's this woman, this, there's some sort of politician. She's saying, we need to believe the children. Like if a child comes to you, you need to believe the children. She would, five years ago, she would have been saying, believe all women. Now it's believe all children. It's like, it's just belief, just untethered from faith and from like, uh, pushback and, and trying to get back into that. It's really difficult to try to return to some sort of pushback. Right, a, a proper amount of, of reciprocal force and testing of each other. And I think both of you are headed, Sasha, you're already here. Uh, you do it very artfully in your practice as a counselor. You, you're designed to give empathetic, or you're not designed, but like you, you've, I'm sure you've cultivated empathetic pushback, some sort of soft hardness, um, some sort of uh, uh, base acid, some sort of soft acid to, to really kind of unwind that. And Casey, you're going in a medical field, so... And your mind's oh, you already are. set up to really to diagnose things and, and to test theories, to test hypothesis. And you do that with yourself in this part of your story. It's part of your character. Yeah, um, I, I will clarify. So the, the plan for me is I did the year of nursing school, medically dropped. Um, after really looking long and hard, I'm going to go back to nursing school. Nurses don't make medical diagnoses unless they're advanced practice nurses, nurses. So like nurse practitioners, um, they make nursing diagnoses, which are a little bit different. It's just about like activities of daily living, but they do have, they, they need to have an acute understanding of, uh, disease pathology, medications, side effects, signs, symptoms, procedures on all that stuff. They just don't, they, they're not the one making the diagnosis. Well, I bring that up because one of the themes or threads running through our conversation is kind of diagnosis and identity. And, and I would like to hear both of the ways that you're both trained to diagnose 
yourself and like the art of diagnosis and, and proper diagnosis and figuring that out. Casey, you've talked a lot about your experience with POTS, like kind of just being in this diagnostic labyrinth. And Sasha, but I, I would like to hear a little bit more because I like learning from you what you do, like how you, what's your relationship to diagnosis definition and like when, when that comes yeah. up in your practice? It's really complicated because I recognize on one hand that it's such a culturally salient way that young people are trying to make sense of themselves. So I can't really discard it. But on a personal level, I'm very hesitant about diagnoses in general. This is true for anything in the DSM. Lots of diagnoses make me quite skeptical. So when I encounter young people in therapy, Sometimes it goes in one direction, which is like, I might work with somebody and after a really long time, I might start to think perhaps this person has some traits of autism, for example. But I'm always really cautious about how I frame it. And if I'm making that, first of all, I don't diagnose as a, an LPC, I don't create diagnoses. But if I think somebody may benefit from looking into a diagnosis, I try to phrase it very carefully. And what I try to focus on is providing information, you know, giving people access to what the criteria for this label looks like. But then we always couch that in labels can be tricky. They can be a gift and a curse. We want to be really mindful not to become overly identified with the label, but we want to use it to help us make decisions and change behaviors so we can feel better, right? So like yeah. if you know that this label includes the following characteristics or traits, well, what do people with those traits do to navigate the environment they're in in a way that's healthy? So rather than becoming like falling down the well of your diagnosis and it becomes like this crippling thing, how can I actually use this information to feel like I have actually more control over the outcomes and make decisions that work for me and like function in the environments that I care about? So so it's very tricky. And then on the other hand, when a young person is the one who feels really compelled about a diagnosis that they're pursuing or seeking or that they have, I try to understand what it means for them. A lot of times people will say, having this diagnosis helped me to stop beating myself up for some odd things that I've been doing my whole life. And that's huge. If, if a diagnosis helps you develop more self-compassion, that's great. But again, we want to be careful not to become overly identified with the diagnosis in a way that becomes limiting. So I tend to think about things as like, are your options opening more or are they closing off? And if something is closing off your options, then it's probably not a, as adaptive as it should be. But if, if a label is helping giving you more options and giving you more choices in how to live and more opportunities, then that's then you can use it in a positive way. So um, I, I just have a, f a funny thing that I was thinking about because you're talking about people that get certain diagnoses and then like strongly identify with those diagnoses to the point where it kind of just like shuts everything else out because like they are that thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it made me laugh because I, I used to talk about it more and I talked about it when I did get diagnosed and I, I take it with a grain of salt. So like in December, January, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which caveat 
I needed either a diagnosis of BPD or um, active self-harm in order to get into an outpatient DBT program. Um, like that was uh -huh. a year long. Like I needed one of those things and I wasn't a self-harmer. So they were kind of like, well, we really want you to be in this DBT program. We really think <laughs> They're it like, would help. Have you thought about self-harming like just a little bit? Why not like a little, like that is so crazy <laughs> that they told you you need one of these things. I'm yeah, sure that's so, not how they said it, but it's just, it's kind of just a funny. Yeah. But then like with, I, I mean, I, some of the symptoms and like some of the things that people with BPD deal with kind of track along my behavior patterns, especially in the past, like unstable sense of self and like really unstable sense of self needing to identify with something external of myself, horrible relationship skills, like just splitting with people. Um, like I, I, di I did, well, again, I, I met the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. I met the diagnostic criteria for BPD, but then I was laughing because I was thinking, okay, well, be people with BPD, usually try and look for something to identify with that's outside of themselves because they have a really, really hard time with self-concept. So then they just identify as having BPD and really identify with that <laughs> problematic thing. And I'm like, oh my God, that's just got a spiral. Huh. Yeah, it's so meta. Did that, did like that help you? Like what was, did it help you navigate um, your relationships or your feelings of a diffuse sense of self having uh, having that tool that tool of that label that help you like okay maybe i'm dpding right now um it, it's in, it's interesting because it well at first when i kind of tweeted about it because naturally when you're diagnosed with something new you just <laughs> go to twitter about it it's interesting because a lot of people were like no you don't you don't have that like, and it's interesting because they said, you're too nice to have borderline personality disorder. And I was like, oh, well, uh, like you, hmm. you don't see half of it. Like I, yeah. I can, especially as a youth, like I could be incredibly nasty. Like I, there's a reason nobody that I know from high school talks to me and I've tried reaching out. They will oh. not. Yeah. because of how vindictive I could be. I, I can be incredibly nasty. I just know how to control it on the internet most of the time, apparently. Um, and not, like, Unless you're serious. unintentionally like erasing people's existence with your autobiographical tale. Yeah. Um, I, un unfortunately, my existence uh, genocides uh, trans people just, you know, by being here and writing about it on Twitter. That's deadly, apparently. Um, but... There's so many things that I could say, but I'm not going yeah, to. It's a polite um, podcast. It, and Sasha's in the room too, and I really try to control myself when she's yeah, um, It's helped in terms, I, I think it hasn't helped having the actual diagnosis, understanding behavior and patterns, and also mm -hmm. having coping skills, especially being in a DBT program and being able to understand, okay, on a scale of zero to a hundred, how dysregulated am I right now? Okay, based on where I'm at, like, mm -hmm. you know, what am I thinking, observing mm -hmm. and describing my thoughts and all that stuff? I, I think at, at first I attributed like having those skills to, oh, well, I have BPD and I'm aware of it now. Well, no, I just, I, I have coping skills to help me and I'm, I have the ability to take a step back and understand like behavior mm -hmm. patterns. It's less about, mm -hmm. oh, well, like I'm cluster B personality disorder versus I, I just know how to kind of look at my thoughts a little bit more. Mm-hmm. There is a very important topic that I wanted to bring up um, 
I don't know to what extent either of you want to get into it or if we're ready to get into it, but I was speaking with a very gifted young woman um, about her detransition, or actually her mastectomy, and uh, she was damaged by the surgery, um, and that damage has persisted for couple of years now. And I was, I, ta- I, I spoke to her online and then I spoke to her in private and, and I'm like, you, you really need to take care of this. This is not good. Um, and she just expressed like I, the people who damage, I can't deal with the people who damaged me. I cannot deal with the people who damaged me. So, and Casey, and then a couple of days later, you come up with like detrans advocacy. I, I was trying to say, you need somebody to help you. I didn't know. I didn't, I was looking for the word uh-huh. advocate, like a detrans advocate, like somebody who would help people who have been Uh damaged by the medical industry engage with the care that they need that is directly related to transition care. And one extra thing, the Oregon uh, state legislator just um, passed a trans bill, like where they, where they cover all the transition, they cover zero transition. They refuse to cover any transition healthcare. Oh, you mean detransition? Detransition healthcare. They'll they'll cover your transition, but they will not cover your detransition. a uh, tiny note about that, my insurance policy, I have Capital Blue Cross, um, and I have one of the best policies that I could have, and it explicitly states in like the transgender healthcare that any reversals um, are not medically necessary no matter what. Which for me, thinking, for instance, not to get too graphic, bottom surgery, cool. something yeah, goes there. wrong, you need to like, you know, you need to remove something, you need to like re- reverse it because the person might die, that that won't be covered. Even though it is legitimately like it is medically necessary. What if there are some medical indications? But that's actually medically medically necessary. It's an experimental procedure to grow, like to be inserted with a neophallus is completely experimental. And they'll cover that. They'll cover the experiment, but they won't cover like fixing what they caused. Yeah. And it it literally explicitly states we will not cover any reversal procedures or medications because it is not medically necessary. I remember sending it um, because at one point there was like a group chat. I think um, at one point I was kind of like shoehorned into DJans United when it was a thing. And they were talking about like insurance bills and all that stuff. And I mentioned to Christina Buttons, I was like, "Uh, yeah, my insurance literally says they just won't cover reversals. And she's like, send it to me. And I sent it and everybody was like, the the insurance just says this. And then I see it in Oregon and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, no, that's already my insurance. So scandalous. Um, I think that beyond trans actually does have some physicians that they have done like workshops with or or, like i I don't know the exact details but i know that there are physicians who have um offered like lectures and talks and supports to detransitioners who have questions about their medical care so i do think that that's something people are starting to develop and like that might be a good group Casey to connect with if you want, or I mean, I don't know what you have planned in terms of advocacy, but I think having medical professionals to talk about, like, we know very little about these long-term outcomes, medically speaking, but like, there's even less information about like, if you want to stop the process or reverse some processes, some are not reversible, but I think that's going to be huge and it's going to be very important for doctors to like get up to speed on this. Yeah. Yeah. And beyond um, transition is a part of Genspect just for anybody yeah. listening oh, okay. in genspect.com or is it an org com org Genspect. Anyways. Genspect I think is org. 
Yeah, um, I think while we talk. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Benjamin. You were referencing a tweet that I got a moderate number of likes, um, where <laughs> I I basically said because I'm I, I'm I want to help. I want to use the knowledge and the experience that I have as a detransitioner and with very limited, very limited uh, medical related training and also just having been to way too many specialists and trying to understand, you know, how to navigate the healthcare system, it's talking about detransition related patient advocacy, just kind of like being able to, mm-hmm. you know, in real life, it's, it's somebody that like will talk you through, okay, you're going to this medical appointment. We have our list of what we want to talk about with the provider, you yeah. know, in case they challenged me in X, Y, Z way, because they could, here's what I'm going to say. Like, these are the problems like i'm you know how do i give the provider what the information they need to try and get me the care that i need and it's also i something that i've seen because i'm in like a d-trans group chat is that people are literally like their health is deteriorating that the house is crumbling down and they just don't want to see a doctor they won't trust anybody they're just like i can't trust anybody after this Mm -hmm. and i'm like "I'm, i'm sorry but you got like you are having pretty moderate cardiovascular issues you're losing vision like you know you're dealing with like a lot of major issues that you know you've at least got to get into some sort of specialist to see but some people they just they just do not the ptsd is too much they are afraid of rejection they don't want to get burned again and even if providers aren't you know super educated or aware or even know about like detransitioners or even transgender healthcare and maybe some of the health Mm -hmm. complications that could come with that um you know, you don't know until you see a specialist. And so, but people just don't even know how to navigate this. And so yeah. I was like, well, I, I have some knowledge because I've literally seen too many specialists <laughs> completely unrelated to trans. Um, you know, I know what kind of information they're looking for. Maybe I could help some of these people, um, you know, like, know, like I, you know, I'm having these issues and I don't know. I just like, I want to fix it. Like, how do I deal with it? Okay. This yeah. is what you walk into the appointment to say, yeah and this is what you're asking for like hey i have this issue could we either could you either refer me out and or could we get some diagnostic testing ordered and then that of course people just start saying oh you could be a case manager oh you could do this somebody even said i should like be a a lawyer and like work in that vein then like people just like took it way too far but certainly i i think that that's something that it's not it's not like a clinician like i wouldn't be a clinician or a healthcare provider i would just be kind of somebody kind of like an educated holding of the yeah. hand to a KC manager <laughs> yeah maybe um but then i also got like a tiny bit of pushback because i'm just like hold on like I, w- I was saying can we wait a couple years if people are like no start now and i'm like well i i said a couple years because i i kind of want to have some education <laughs> done before i do anything yeah. um so but i mean that was an idea and that's a, I, I certainly think that's something that could be offered but also i'm aware of just kind of like being this random person that shows up at people's medical appointments and being like hi i'm a friend i'm gonna help them work through this but Um, yeah i don't know it's something it's so necessary it's so there's these damaged kids they're just damaged kids and you know i i we can give them therapy, but they need to interact with the medical uh-huh. industry and the medical industry either explicitly doesn't want to deal with them, is completely ignorant about them, or has damaged them so much that they don't want to go back to it. So there's a huge, and that, that need is we're, we're at the, we're, we're at the beginning of the cone and it's going to expand. It's going to expand. So, I mean, it, it shouldn't be on you, Casey, but 
just no. that you're thinking about it, there's going to yeah. be tons of people that are there willing to help. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's huge. Yeah. Honestly, here's the thing. I, I don't want to be known for my detransition. Like I, I don't, the well, way stop I coming viral. on my show, but don't stop coming on my show. Cause I love <laughs> well, no, having no, you on I, my show. I'm fine. And I, I come on your show. I was actually <laughs> reflecting cause like I've gotten a ridiculous number of interview requests over the time where I had like a really public Twitter presence and all that stuff um, from some pretty big names, pretty big names. And I turned down nearly every single one because I just didn't feel comfortable. I had interviews with a couple other people and you are one of the few, one of the two that I don't regret. Every other single one, I'm like, yeah, it was kind of too soon, propaganda-y. But like this, because it's it's pretty casual and I'm not just like this tragic story. We actually have conversations. Yeah. Um, and certainly this is this is an aspect of me. It's a pretty major aspect of me. I basically just LARPed as a man for five years thinking I had the brain of a man. I have these lived experiences, um, yeah. but I don't want to just be known as like uh. this damaged woman, if you will. And that's why I, that's something I just didn't like about the public side of things. And, you know, the idea of testifying. Kind of I mean, I, I got asked to fly out. And... Huh? You're kind of typecast as a damaged oh, yeah. individual. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and certainly there are detransitioners that try and, you know, surpass that. But it's pretty hard in the public sphere when you're going around everywhere talking about how you've been hurt by a, a certain sure. practice. Um, yeah. And I, you know, no wonder a lot of people get burnt out. Like even Kat Cadenson, she went on Megyn Kelly's show and she tweeted about like just a general comment. And a lot of us were reflecting on it that she goes, you know, you have to admit being a detransitioner, a public detransitioner is pretty humiliating at times. It's yeah. just that it's it's the nature yeah. of the beast. And I, I didn't want to yeah. be known for that because mm. I, I got to a certain point with my self-esteem where I thought I deserve to be known for more than what happened to me. And so I want to help. I want to use some of the knowledge. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, you know, look at the gaps in the system that we have, um, look at the gaps of like, okay, well, what is needed? And then seeing all these people talk about like, well, I've got all these things going on, but I don't dare go back to a doctor. I don't know how to navigate it. I don't know how to do any of that. And healthcare literacy, knowing how to navigate the healthcare system, uh, just in general, nevertheless, when you're somebody dealing uh, with, you know, a lot of um, medical issues and mental illness and apprehension and PTSD, knowing how to navigate the system is crucial and having somebody else to support it could be the difference between you actually getting care or you staying miserable. And I, I learned this um, like while I was in nursing school and just felt really passionately about it and, and like, you know, healthcare disparities and um, rural medicine as well, but that's a little bit different. So that, you know, that's how I kind of got into that as an idea of something that I could do that wasn't super front facing, but at the same time, like I was still being able to use my experience to help. Well, I was, I, I got into a little bit of an argument with a kind of like a right wing account. I don't know. He turns out to watch my stuff a lot, but he made this statement about how nobody should be looking to detransitioners. <laughs> They're fools. And, and, you know, they're, they're not icons or whatever. And, and I got into an argument with him. He was trying to make a point that they are being used. Detransitions are being used as a cludgel in the culture war. Uh, and I, I don't like that at all. I, I don't like that. Trump comes out about that and, and, you know, whatever the Daily Wire is doing that. I, I understand that there's a cultural issue with uh -huh. transgenderism. 
Uh-huh. But the but the detransitioner as a category of story, I think is is so special because every single person in the detransitioner category surpasses the c- category. Every single one, if you actually listen to them, uh-huh. they they've already like broken out of so many different eggshells. You see a soul that's got got scarred by how many how many containers they've broken out of. And so whenever I listen to the detransitioner, I don't listen to their detransition. I listen to them because that that that's the that's the real that's the only reality that we have when it comes to especially the gender identity or whatever that that label is the only reality in it is that person struggling and 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 learning something and becoming wise and casey i just have to say you you, you so much surpass that like you just you're fun to be around you're very talented speaker so you're just you're just great to listen to so it's like i'm not talking to a detransition well it's hard to (laughs) and i I don't want to make you faint i really want to like hear how your whole like lifting journey goes whether you compete or not i'm like so excited about this yeah no i i definitely do want to get back into it um slowly but surely so yeah um it's also uh, and tiny negative of like when you're in the trance space and you're taking testosterone and you're lifting if you do it right you're just on like linear periodization all the time well and yeah uh, testosterone um basically you can make incremental improvements in the amount of weight that you're lifting like every single week but once you've adapted enough to training and you've been lifting long enough you can't do that anymore Mm -hmm. like you can't just like add on five pounds to every lift every week and expect it to go well or expect it to work but on testosterone i could yeah consistently well another whole world that we haven't even touched on is like how interesting it is that actually a lot of female athletes take testosterone for athletic performance reasons so actually there's a whole cohort of female people on testosterone that we could learn a lot about and from but they're not transitioning to be to be male necessarily or to be male-like but of course they end up being quite male-like especially in the bodybuilding space like that's a whole interesting thing we didn't even talk about um do you know of any research into that i wonder if like because it was there, i guess that's is, kind of like illegal so it's it's illegal but oh yeah I mean, it's totally illegal there's a lot of anecdotal stories it's yeah. really interesting but i mean t- to to the patient advocacy thing i was just kind of thinking about like it's probably going to be necessary at some point for people who are in this detransition process to be able to go to a provider that's not part of a gender clinic at all and say something like, um, I was born female. I took steps to attempt to transition and those were a mistake. And I do not, I no longer feel comfortable being referred to any physician who's part of the gender clinic industry. Therefore, I am requesting your help to treat me like a normal person that has these kind of altered hormonal levels due to this intervention that was harmful to me. Like there needs to be a framework so that the general practitioners or the specialists who aren't part of gender clinics are like, oh, this is a gender thing. Go back there. Because I think that's what probably commonly happens. So there needs to be like an awareness campaign around like this huge number of people who are like, I no longer trust gender clinics, but I'm seeking your care to help me adjust my 
like hormone levels or my endocrine system or whatever. Yeah. It, it's yeah. going to be so important to like have a narrative around that. Yeah. And I, that was one thing that kind of like sparked the idea of patient advocacy as well with me, because everybody, you know, I talk to different people that, you know, we see a lot of like front facing detransitioners, like the public advocacy people, and also some that aren't as much. And mm -hmm. most of them have had a lot of issues accessing care. Um, either like their clinicians are just really confused or they do try and refer them back to the gender clinic. Yeah. I, I haven't had any issues at all. Good. In fact, I've received impressively good care. And, huge. you know, I, I, I'm not in like I, the healthcare system that I'm in because basically behavioral health, like I receive it in one healthcare system, but then in order to keep receiving it in the outpatient system, I had to move my primary care there. And just, it's easier to have all the specialists and so on, but they sometimes cross refer into different healthcare systems if they don't have people available. Um, but like, I, I was pretty apprehensive, but I, you know, had a new appointment with a nurse practitioner and it was like a couple months off of hormones. And I, I described it and she was surprisingly receptive. And yeah. was, I mean, there was a little kerfuffle. They put me in as a male to female transgender mm -hmm, individual, mm -hmm, but that's mm -hmm, also because mm -hmm. my legal birth, I mean, my legal sex is male, but mm -hmm, they, they were mm -hmm, pretty understanding. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, this is a woman who, you know, did this thing. Here's the medical history, took testosterone for five years, had a double mastectomy, mm -hmm. is rolling that back, trying to live as female. And I, the way I approached it was, I don't know what's going on gynecologically. Can I get a referral so I can have a full diagnostic workup? Which of course is yeah. hard, but I was like, well, the, you know, I, I, I want to know if I've done any damage, which, you know, good news, no damage, everything's perfectly fine. Ovaries are working. Everything's fine. Like right. that, that was really good. But I was trying to think, yeah. cause I got that pretty easily. And even like with the OBGYN, after I explained the situation, she was really, I mean, she got it mm -hmm. and I, I didn't run, run into any issues, but other people aren't. I'm like, well, what's the difference here? Like yeah. you can't just be like, I have a super awesome healthcare system because our, our healthcare system can have mixed reviews. Um, but what's the difference? And I am thinking maybe it's how I'm approaching it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's probably you, it's you how, you're, how you're framing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not. From, um... from... No, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, I can see, and this is not a criticism uh, necessarily. I can see how somebody who has PTSD or is damaged is bringing the doctor a lot of psychological problems. And then the doctor kind of just like, I, I'm, I'm not dealing, I'm dealing with body. I deal with bodies, dude, dude, I, de I deal with bodies. Go back to the gender clinic. They deal with all this uh, emotional mm. stuff. I don't deal with emotional steps. You know, it's just like, and I, I think Casey, you're adapted to like living and speaking the language and living in both worlds. And that, that would be the place where the advocacy could happen. The translating or the buffering of the doctor from the patient and the patient from the doctor, like that translation mm -hmm. kind of aspect uh, to filter the information and, and, or even just, you know, might, might just be useful to just have uh, tips and tricks for doctors and for detransitioners like here, here's things just keep mm -hmm. it to these this information you're going here for this kind of information or the doctor's like okay they're going to present you with maybe more information that you need but here's the relevant information that you're looking for and and just kind of just providing a filter for care to actually take place for diagnostic criteria to to take place in a clean way yeah yeah, I'm I mean, really it, sorry, but I have to go for six o'clock, which is in a minute. In a minute, what are you going to eat for dinner, Sasha? 
I don't know. I have okay. another call. And okay. Then I, have, I will eat dinner it, later. But Are you going to be in Ireland? I am. We're going to okay. meet each other in Ireland. We're going to oh, do a high five. Who knows what's going to happen? Burst some patchouli, run around Killarney, drinking pints or whatever. What well, did you uh, say about patchouli? I, I I don't know what you do. I don't know what you smell like. So I'm just I'm kind of oh, wondering. Like, do you smell like I sage, smell like patchouli. sandalwood? No. Like what? What no. are, you know? Like I'm just like. Okay. None well, it'll be those, great to meet you in person. Thank you so much for your time, Sasha. Thank you, and Casey. It was super nice to meet you. And you as well. It was, this is a really you're a lovely, lovely person to talk to. Wow. I'm sure you're going to do amazing things. Thank you. Well, um, have fun on your call. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and Benjamin, I will see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, very soon. Very soon. Have a good night. All right. Good night. Night. Bye. Bye. Huh. <laughs> should I keep sure. recording? Should we? Should we end it there? I mean, it's other... up to you. Yeah. I don't have an appointment, so you don't have an appointment. Well, no. you do have a blank wall before behind you. You need to get a curtain. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't. I don't do a bunch of this stuff. You're like the only person I talk to. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Let's see. After. Yeah, I let's did. stop the recording. We'll just do like we'll we'll do bitching shop talk afterwards. Yeah, true. All right. See you guys. Uh, and then. <laughs>